Chris Brown and welcome to episode 10 of Radicals in Conversation in-house, the podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. These are episodes that have been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme, which features authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction being published today. This month's episode was recorded in May. Sarah Shin came to Bookhouse to talk about her new co-edited collection, Space Crone, which brings together Ursula Le Guin's writings on feminism and gender. The book is published by Silver Press and offers new insights into Le Guin's imaginative, multi-species feminist consciousness, from its roots in deep ecology and philosophies of non-violence to her self-education about racism and her writing on motherhood and ageing. Sarah is joined in conversation here by Samantha Walton, an author and reader in modern literature at Bath Spa University. The event took place in the same week as the coronation of King Charles, which I offer here only as context for an otherwise oblique reference to Sea Day that Sarah makes during the conversation. Space Crone is of course available to buy online or in store from Bookhouse. Just head over to their website bookhousebristol.com for more information. So here are Sarah Shin and Samantha Walton on Radicals and Conversation in-house. Hello, everyone. Uh, I hope you can hear us. I'm Samantha Walton. I'm based in Bristol. I'm a writer interested in nature and environmental writing of all kinds. So it's a real pleasure for me to be here tonight um, with Sarah Shin, who is the co-editor um, with Somaya of Space Crone, a collection of essays by Ursula Le Guin. Um, you may also know Sarah's um, editorial work with um, Ignota Press, which, of which she's the um, director and an editor, and the fabulous New Sons Festival um, at the Barbican. If anybody's not been along to those events, um, they're absolutely incredible. I think we're just going to kind of get straight into questions, or did you want to read a little bit to begin with? I think I might read as we go along, if the nonlinear brain reaches for something in the yep. drawer of tangled wires. <laughs> <laughs> we're both equipped with copies of the books, so there may be readings interspersed throughout. But yeah, to, to begin, I think it would just be really nice to introduce Le Guin. Um, so what would you, I mean, everybody here might be a huge Le Guin fan already, but what would you say about Le Guin? How would you introduce her to somebody who's not familiar with her work? Well, she would probably describe herself in a very interesting and lateral way. Obviously, she's the writer of over 30 publications, but I would describe her really as a world weaver and a myth maker and someone who teaches us about power within rather than power over to paraphrase and borrow from Starhawk via Ion. Mm. Okay, now you know Le Guin. <laughs> We're going to get really into um, some of her key ideas. And um, I think this is such a good collection in the sense that it weaves together so many aspects of her like really expansive thought and practice. So um, what was it that interested you and so in collecting these essays together and what kind of absence did it fill I guess in Le Guin's publications? Well there are actually quite a few collections of her essays and non-fiction including Dancing at the Edge of the World and Dreams Must Explain Themselves mm -hmm. but I think the central premise of this book is to gather together her writings on feminism and gender mm -hmm. and the term to gather is really key here because gathering, holding together is such an interesting part of her thinking and her practice as a writer. In The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, she talks about, um, she makes the association between 
you know, what she terms as the first tool, the receptacle, and also writing stories. So we considered this a gathering in the recognition that other editors would have gathered a different bag of things. And I'd say that what gap did it fill? Well, it just hadn't been done before, and it seemed like such a great idea for Silver Press to do this. So that was, um, you know, something that we chanced upon. But perhaps one reason why it hadn't been done before is because, you know, she says she's not a theorist, she wasn't a sociologist, she wasn't a political activist, she was primarily a writer of fiction. So maybe that's why people hadn't thought of this sort of uh, framework before. And as well as that, she was actually an interesting feminist. You know, she says that she was a feminist because she didn't know how old she could have been in the 1960s, but she had married and had children by the time that she was in her early 30s. I think she got married when she was 24. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, she was actually quite conventional. And, you know, her marriage with Charles Le Guin, she said that he wasn't my wife, but what he did was he treated running a household as an exercise of mutual aid. So, you know, what she did was she cooked and she cleaned and she kept the house, but she also wrote, whereas he paid the bills and went out to work, etc. So in, in some ways, she was quite conventional. Yeah, there's a really, I love the introduction where you really introduce her life and her influences um, and put her in this context of feminism, but also in her personal life. And I hadn't really realised quite what an interesting childhood she'd had in terms of influences um, from family and kind of this wider network of friends. So I'd love to know a bit more about her, yeah, her early influences. Yeah, she had a really extraordinary um, context in which to forge her extremely creative imagination. So her father was Alfred Krober, who was one of the first people appointed to the Department of Anthropology, which was a new department at the University of Berkeley. And then her mother started writing later in life. And then there's, yeah, this biographical information is, is contained in the introduction. But then later on, there's an essay called The Fisher Woman's Daughter, where Le Guin actually talks about her mother's writing practice and how she actually started quite late after the children were relatively grown up. But her mother actually also wrote a bestseller, which was the biography of Ishi, who is the last survivor of the Yahi tribe um, who were massacred by settler colonialists. So um, her parents basically had a network of family friends, which included, you know, people who were working on the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis about how language creates reality, which then um, is in dialogue with indigenous worldviews. And indigenous friends would come and visit when the family would go for summers at Napa Valley. So that's a little glimpse of this very, um, I'd say, erudite, exploratory, bookish household, which was also very outward looking in many ways. But then at the same time, as a writer whose parents were so embedded within anthropology, she completely recognises what we would today call something about the problematic or exploitative nature of both anthropology and fiction writing mm. <laughs> in terms of gleaning you know, material and how you use it. There's a, such an interesting kind of spectrum of influences, I guess. Um, do you see the influence of Indigenous thinking much in her, her writing, I thought? Um, massively. I mean... Just one example is the role of language. So within animist or indigenous worldviews, their agency is granted to other than humans, you know, things that we wouldn't necessarily think of as having agency, such as language itself. Mm -hmm. But in the Earthsea novels, for example, language is how you can influence reality, how you perform magic. It's through knowing the correct name of things. So that's one form of animacy and agency that she confers onto language that I think has parallels and resonances with other worldviews. As well as that, 
you know, the reality of mythology for her and mythology and fiction as being a realm that is coexistent with this reality that we have here rather than being pure fantasy. Mm, my gosh, and, and she manages as well to weave in influences from Taoism as well, right? There's this um, amazing bit in the essays where you talk about how she thought that modern life was like all yang energy. If you have like yin and yang, the, the modernity and the sort of like thrust of, I'm guessing kind of Western civilization here had been very much yangwards and that um, what she was trying to do in her writing and what she felt that was necessary was a move yinwards. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear you speak to that a bit more. I think that, that this calls for a little reading yes, from her own is. words. Um, but I would also <laughs> say that, of course, as well as buying this book, Le Guin um, did a really wonderful rendition, to use her term. It's not a translation, but it's a rendition of a translation of the Tower Te Ching, which I think is incredible to read and to see how Taoism had such a profound influence on her thought because you know her father had all these books in his library and she would go and read from the library as well as, you know, the French section in the local public library. And actually, we have a quote from her about reading her father's much-read edition of the 1898 translation of the Tower to Ching. She said, I was lucky to discover this book um, so young so that I could live with his book my whole life long. So the section that I'll read is precisely about Taoism. So we write in the introduction... This early exposure to ancient Chinese thought had a profound influence on Le Guin's writing, which often uses moments of cultural contact and exchange to suggest alternatives to the Western status quo. In the Tao, yin and yang describe sets of separate yet interrelated forces that appear dualistic, but in fact form a harmonious whole, a symbolic language that allows for nuanced expressions of difference with each containing the other. The common association of yin with the feminine and yang with the masculine should, particularly from a feminist perspective, be understood as speaking more of the dynamic relationship between polarities rather than of essentialist natures. In Le Guin's radical lexicon, yang and yin become, among other things, expressions of a utopian dialectic. And this is quoting from Le Guin. Utopia has been yang. In one way or another, from Plato on, utopia has been the big yang motorcycle drip. Bright, dry, clear, strong, firm, active, aggressive, lineal, progressive, creative, expanding, advancing, and hot. Our civilization is now so intensely yang that any imagination of bettering its injustices or eluding its self-destructiveness must involve a reversal. To attain the constant, we must return, go round, go inward, go yinward. What would a yin utopia be? It would be dark, wet, obscure, weak, yielding, passive, participatory, circular, cyclical, peaceful, nurturant, retreating, contracting, and cold. So I feel that um, this little passage contains quite a lot in relation to Le Guin's fiction. You know, this thing about yang and yin and how these polarities actually contain each other. You can see, obviously, very closely connected to the left hand of darkness as one example. That kind of obsession she has with balance, but also with kind of honouring and kind of inviting these these forces and these energies and these kind of this wetness and dampness and things that are usually cast out as like not useful political energies or um, or energies in themselves. I, I really love that. 
And I think it kind of leads into a question about her fiction, because we were just saying, as we were chatting before, that the first thing we read by Le Guin was The Dispossessed. And I think a lot of people know her through her contributions to, to leftist thinking and particularly to anarchist philosophies. So yeah, I wonder what, uh, this is Bristol, what, what are the leftists going to get from this? Yeah. <laughs> what are anti-capitalists yeah. going to get? Well, actually, this book contains an unusual suggestion. So. Um, I also realised that I wanted to um, just give a couple of shout outs. So thanks to Darren, who's a manager to this bookshop who has had a baby. And um, there's a lot of talk about motherhood actually in this book and parenting and caregiving. So um, thanks to Darren for organising this. And then my co-editor, So, I would like to obviously appreciate massively is um, the true Le Guin head. <laughs> yeah, they basically have read everything by Le Guin and are a huge, like, just incredible nerd in the best possible way. So they chose this um, forward to Murray Book Kitchen's mm -hmm. The Next Revolution. So in terms of her contributions to anarchist thinking, I mean, it's threaded throughout all of her work. It's quite difficult to isolate things in her work. And of course, she would be very, very, very against this because she thinks that the divisive mechanism is the so-called father tongue, which we may talk about later, mm -hmm. and the connective, relational, mode as being the mother tongue mm. and she actually says that the feminine principle is itself anarchic but specifically about anarchism and specifically about leftism one of the things that I guess people want to sort of take away from her is that she was very anti-capitalist mm. so she talks about Murray Bookchin's I guess degrowth politics in a way mm. <laughs> and um, she says this is such a great quote. Um, Capitalism's grow or die imperative stands radically at odds with ecology's imperative of interdependence and limit. The two imperatives can no longer coexist with each other, nor can any society founded on the myth that they can be reconciled hope to survive. Either we establish an ecological society or society will go under for everyone, irrespective of his or her status. And I wondered what you might think about this as being particularly interested in ecological literature. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I, well, it's interesting to me. Um, I got interested in, I guess, this realm of literary study called eco-criticism, which was, is very focused on kind of thinking about what creative and kind of cultural production can, can contribute to thinking through the challenges of the environmental crisis. And it was really weird when I started working in that field because like no one was talking about capitalism at all. It was like, oh, we can all just like re-enchant ourselves and learn to love nature again. And there was a bit of stuff around like binaries and this idea of um, the separation of humanity from nature as being structurally kind of a problem in terms of like thinking about what it means to survive and thrive in the world, right? But yeah, no one was talking about capitalism apart from people like Le Guin, right? Um, and you get into Le Guin and then you get towards Murray Bookchin and you kind of get into the really kind of radical anti-capitalist thinking that's, that's always actually been inherent in climate movement and certainly has always been inherent in indigenous resistance to land grabs and so on. So um, yeah, I feel like Le Guin, she has had this real revival recently, um, which I would like to, to ask you about um, in a bit. Um, but I think it's people wanting to ask like bigger, more critical, um, more kind of radical questions about the climate crisis than, you know, what can I do to shrink my carbon footprint? <laughs> you know? um, it, it, yeah, she kind of helps you think through like 
the, the many scales on which climate crisis kind of plays out. Yeah, we, we spoke at the beginning about the holding ability and she's honestly so capacious. Yeah. She's capable of holding a lot. So mm -hmm. there's a part in the introduction which so wrote in about how we envision this book almost as a canopy yeah. or, or how she is actually canopy, sheltering all these other writers. And she's always writing intergenerationally in a way and ancestrally too, which is, you know, I think quite close to indigenous thinking in some ways. You know, she's always writing and thinking with Wolf, with all these other writers but somehow squiggling to something else, going back to the anti-capitalism. I was just thinking on my way here that, you know, we're in the week leading up to Sea Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Hopefully lovely riot day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just couldn't, I just can't resist this, but we have to, we have to read this. I mean, it's one of her oft-quoted things, mm -hmm. but um, she said, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings, any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of people's like first encounter with Le Guin, I hope. Because yeah. <laughs> like, she gave that speech, everyone was like, who, who the hell is this? Like, yeah, this <laughs> old lady. Yeah, um, yeah and, and then, you know, people get into her science fiction often as well, which I think is what is so nice about this, is it's predominantly speeches, it's editorials, um, obviously there's, there's bits of fiction as well. And yeah, I, I wonder... Obviously, it's a bit mean to ask this because this is predominantly not fiction. But like, what do you think it was about fiction that kind of allowed her to explore like all these kind of enmeshed elements of thinking? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the way that you asked that question just after this quote, yeah. you know, it's the power of the imagination. Totally. You have to be able to imagine what else is there apart from the divine right of kings or other than mm -hmm. capitalism. So it's one of her primary modalities. But then as well as that, you know, again, thinking about her Taoism and her engagement with using duality to undo duality because duality makes thought possible and then she sort of undoes that thought and makes something else. Um, and so science fiction specifically, not just fiction, but science fiction is almost a sort of, um, you know, paradoxical suturing of reason and something that drives fiction, which is reaching into something else. Yeah, I can... Definitely see that. that. That's sort of like, she's often talked about as like a feminist, speculative, fabulist kind of thinking, this thinking that's like future oriented, but is also interested in, yeah, these binaries and how we arrange knowledge into, into like useful knowledge, like yang knowledge and, and yin knowledge as well. And yeah, we've touched on feminism quite a bit, but like, I'd love to know what you, like contributions, because they're manifold, right? She makes to 20th century feminist thinking. Oh gosh, I mean, being the Gwen, I feel like, she goes in all directions. So actually, it's not necessarily new, but some of it's very old. She goes right back to the beginning because as a true radical would. <laughs> so she looks to sort of dismantle our idea of what is, e what is even gendered knowledge or like where the modernity that produces feminism. Mm. So the modernity that produces feminism and actually shapes our idea of what gender even is maybe goes back to human evolution. So again, in the carry bag theory of fiction, she's looking at what the first tool might be. And instead of it being this, you know, sticking, jabbing, phallic sphere, it's the humble container that mm -hmm. enables domestic life to happen. The sling that carries baby oo and the oats and, you know, the, the thing of water. So she's also looking at a lot of domesticity in some of the fiction that we've um, included here. And as a mother, and the aforementioned, like, 
what looks to be a, a rather conventional life from the outside, mm -hmm. she actually had some really interesting things to say about that. She used the empowerment that feminism gave her to critique feminism itself mm -hmm. at that moment in time. And um, maybe it's time for another little reading from a rather long essay about the Fisher woman called The Fisherwoman's Daughter, which is super interesting because she's also talking about her mother's writing and her mother's relationship to not only her own writing, but also her daughter Le Guin's writing mm -hmm. and um, what it costs to write and create. And Le Guin really wants to explode this binary between babies or books. Mm -hmm. This sort of like emptying out or outsourcing or... Um, saying that procreation and creation, you can only have one or the other. <laughs> so she says, it is feminism that has empowered me to criticize not only my society and myself, but for a moment now, feminism itself. The Book of Babies myth is not only a misogynist hang up, it can be a feminist one. Some of the women I respect most, writing for publications that I depend on for my sense of women's solidarity and hope, continue to declare that it's, quote, virtually impossible for a heterosexual woman to be a feminist, as if heterosexuality was heterosexism, and that social marginality such as of lesbian, childless, black, or Native American women appears to be necessary to form the feminist. Applying these judgments to myself and believing that as a woman writing at this point, I have to be a feminist to be worth beans, I find myself once again excluded, disappeared. The rationale of the exclusionist, as I understand it, is that the material privilege and social approbation our society grants to the heterosexual wife, and particularly the mother, prevent her solidarity with less privileged women and insulate her from the kind of anger and the kind of ideas that lead to feminist action. So again, there's a much more incisive structural political analysis there. Totally. And one that actually, I think, stands up to you know the, the way that we kind of think about gender and gender fluidity and the kind of way that people articulate experiences of gender now have changed quite radically since you know a lot of the essays collected in this book and I'm yeah really struck by how radical and open and quite experimental yeah. Le Guin's experience and kind of writing about gender is so yeah how do you feel that her, her writing kind of stands up to the way that we talk about gender now? Yeah it's really interesting to think about the historical arc yeah. since the 20th century and, and now, mm -hmm. I feel like it would be absolutely terrifying mm -hmm. to do what she's she did now, because obviously gender fluidity is such an explosive landmine area, mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of dragged in and accumulated all sorts of other conservatisms mm -hmm. and attempts to police bodies. Mm -hmm. In terms of how things stand up, I mean, one of the most incredible things about Le Guin is that how she always was self-editing and self-reappraising and asking herself questions and thinking out loud in a way that really puts into practice what she says about how, um, you know, is relegated to the private and what's appropriate for the public. You know, she says that the private life was a, an invention of patriarchy, therefore this distinction between what you do behind closed doors and what's appropriate to put out there is something that we can do away with if we want to change things and so thinking out loud I think is really um, brave mm -hmm. and you know we included is gender necessary redux which editorially it was a little bit we were trying to sort out the dates and order the pieces chronologically however Le Guin herself being very non-linear um, didn't pay too much attention to the dates herself so <laughs> there are some contradictions <laughs> which we did not put it in ourselves and so is gender necessary 
she is footnoting in 1988 an essay from 1976 in which she's actually writing about the left hand of darkness, which was 1960-something. So, <laughs> and in 1988, no, 1989, so this is it. We couldn't figure out whether it's 88 or 89, but it doesn't matter. She said it would have been unethical to rewrite the 1976 text in which she's reflecting on her experiences writing Left Hand of Darkness. Mm -hmm. And so instead, she's done this annotation. And the annotations range from comments that you would write to yourself in your own Google Doc mm -hmm. to much longer footnotes. And there's one footnote which is wonderful about pronouns. And so I'll read this footnote on pronouns, this annotation, but it's also worth saying that I think one significant contribution that she would have made to debates around gender today would have been through her skill with language and how she lived in language. So we mentioned the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis earlier about how language can create reality. And that's why she's paying attention to pronouns. And that's what this quote is about. I still dislike invented pronouns, but now I dislike them less than the so-called generic pronoun he, him, his, which does in fact exclude women from discourse and which was an invention of male grammarians. For until the 16th century, the English generic singular pronoun was they, them, there, as it still is in English and American colloquial speech. It should be restored to the written language and let the pedants and the pundits squeak and gibber in the streets. <laughs> Yeah, that sense, I think it comes up in the introduction as well, where you talk about how she um, changed the focus on kind of male characters. I think it was in Left Hand of Darkness or it is the Earthsea trilogy um, because feminists kind of offered her critique and she like, you know, you get this real sense of her as somebody who's like reflecting on her practice and kind of building in other people's feedback and it's kind of constantly changing and growing. And yeah, this sort of sense of like editing yourself and kind of like saltily editing yourself as you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's something that most writers don't have the humility to do. She's self-tweeting herself. Yeah. <laughs> um, you brought up language there and I wanted to come back to a couple of terms that you mentioned earlier around like father tongue and mother tongue, because that's a really interesting aspect of her thinking around language. Um, and then this kind of like almost like third way of articulating as well. So um, I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about that. To tell everybody a bit more about that. Gosh. Um, <laughs> so this is in her Bryn Mawr commencement address. So that's a speech. And um, Bryn Mawr is, um, I believe, it's a women's college on the east coast of America. So quite a high intellect place that she was delivering the speech to. So that's the context. And she's telling all these um, you know, young women about how she thinks about language, that the father tongue is what has become normalised as being the only legitimate public discourse. Mm -hmm. And it's been particularly reified by the invention of the printing press, which exported, you know, en masse, a very particular form of language that had all these power dynamics embedded in it. And then she said that the, the mother tongue is something that lives in relation. It's, mm -hmm. you know, have you had dinner? And it expects this response. And it's something that often takes place in the private sphere, but it's also something that is embodied and it's shared through moments of being together rather than necessarily being um, abstracted. And so with this relational and divisive dichotomy, she says that there's a third way, which is the marriage of public discourse and private experience. And so she's saying that you know, poetry, 
song, these things which are part of the oral tradition are ways to bring, bring it together. Do you know, I, I, in my other academic life, I write a lot about Nan Shepherd, and mm -hmm. there's like so many similarities in their thinking. She thought of herself as trying to reconcile um, kind of Robert Burns's lusty, earthy way of writing that comes from like the body and the ballad tradition um, with like modernists like Hugh McDermott who were like up in the stars. And she was like, oh, if I can unite these two and make something that's like both earthy and like cosmic at the same time, like. You know, that, that will be just something that's not been done, I guess. It's like that resolution of binaries that doesn't, like, collapse them, but, like, also doesn't keep them in these, like, false oppositions, I yeah. guess. Um, I feel like she's a very integrated person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, like, a big part of her environmental thinking as well. And, yeah, you, you asked me kind of how it... No Le Guin, and, yeah, it's through kind of environmental writing. It was through a book called Sense of Place and Sense of Planet um, by Ursula Heiser, who's an environmental philosopher, and, and she talks a lot about how Le Guin is able to imagine the Earth as this kind of, like, responsive, interconnected ecosystem that, like, humanity is viscerally and imaginatively connected with. So for people interested in the environmental aspects of her thinking, like, what, what can they expect from this collection? Well, I was just thinking that I think there's a piece in here where she says that the word ecosystem mm -hmm. is not very helpful. I know, I love that, yeah. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to say a bit more about it? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> yes, um, let me think. It's in the introduction, isn't it? Or is it in one of the essays? There's definitely something around, like, placing that way of imagining the environment into a scientific language. I think that connects with what you were saying about the, the father tongue. It kind of takes it out of the realm of intimate knowledge that people might hold in their, their everyday experience of the world. It becomes like a kind of specialist knowledge, right? And it removes it from the realm of experience. So yeah. that was a big thing about the mother tongue, which is it's the language of experience and, and shared experience particularly. So the composer Pauline Oliveros met Le Guin and Le Guin tells a story about how Pauline said, you know, in the midst of all these women who were being very heady and talking very cleverly about subjects, she said, offer your experience as your truth. Mm. And, you know, thinking again about the orality of poetry, of song, she says that misogynists have a good reason to kind of scrub this out of the public sphere because they don't like to hear women talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think I really want to hand over to questions in just one minute. So, so start brewing questions. But um, I really, I wanted to ask you something about her contributions, like as obviously as a woman and as somebody who, you know, she had children and then she got into writing quite, I'm going to say quite late, but, you know, she's like 37, right, when she published her first novel, which is younger than me. So I'm like <laughs> an old woman. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it's interesting now, you know, I think it's maybe because the, 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 you know, grant a young novelist, um, were announced last week there's this real kind of fixation I think with young people writing which is you know good for, for supporting people in early in their careers but can be excluding to people whose early careers just happen to be a bit later right so yeah th this book is called Space Crone um, she reflects a lot about um, like the, the first essay in it right is about the menopause and about that word itself right and um, why she chooses to, to use that word rather than some of the, the euphemisms that like have um, <laughs> been existed to kind of like deny the reality of that experience so um yeah I'd love to know what you think about her as a writer kind of reflecting on age and her own age and, and kind of how she frames that conversation 
Well, of course, we were always going to have to call this book Space Crone. Yeah, um, best title. <laughs> and she begins her essay by saying that the menopause is probably the least glamorous subject possible. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why she's so great, that as a fantastical writer, she's not only just writing about fantastical things, but there's this real commitment to what it takes to just keep on living yeah. and for, you know, reproductive labour and these things. So, you know, it's entirely fitting that she should be writing about the, the menopause. And also, you know, kind of going back to the, the body thing, mm. she says that when she writes stories, she can imagine herself embodied in the characters, but she doesn't get that in essays. Mm. Um, and she really does, you know, pay attention and she doesn't ex seek to exclude the realm of the bodily, which was, of course, the realm of the woman rather than the rational intellect of man. Mm. So in Space Crone, she's talking about the changes that a woman's body goes through or a menstruating body goes through. Mm. And I would connect the changes that the menstruating body goes through over the course of a life and also over the course of the menstrual cycle mm. as being something that was probably very threatening and horrific mm. to, to people who didn't menstruate in the olden days because it was just like, you know, bleeding and, and all of these things and the capacity to, to change and not be linear and consistent would have been um, quite threatening. So the crone, that word, would come from the tripartite nature of the change. So it would go from the maiden and the mother and the crone, and the capacity for fertility goes away um, after the menopause. However, she says that for the crone, it's to become pregnant with herself. I love that so much. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, it brings cronehood. It brings us back full circle to the yeah. yang and yin thing that it yeah, contains yeah. the seed of something else. It contains, in this sort of supposed death of fertility, there is a rebirth there of the self. And, I mean, this is in the context of an essay where she's um, suggesting that if a person was to be sent into space with this kind of like alien uh, civilization, the best person to send would be a crone, right? To send the granny into space because um, a lot of the threads we've been talking about today, right? The, the way that she articulates herself in relation to the world, the experiences that she's lived, the obstacles that she's faced are like almost like the, the perfect story to tell about like life on this planet, right? Get into the spaceship granny. Get into the spaceship <laughs> granny. <laughs> that was Sarah Shin and Samantha Walton on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about Space Crone on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events. If you enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to share, rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is actually our final episode in the RIC in-house series, for now at least. But we'll be back again in a few weeks' time with our regular panel show, so do stay tuned for that. As ever, thank you for listening and goodbye.